Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. John chapter 3, if you guys have your Bibles, that's where I'm going to be spending my time today. You would think a pastor would love Christmas and Easter. They're honestly my least favorite times to preach. Um, Because I love being your pastor, for those of you that I'm your pastor, because I get you for 52 weeks, so I don't have to say everything at once. Uh, But when it comes to Christmas, and Easter as well, it's almost like we're taking a diamond, and you can look at this diamond in about 150 different ways, and it's beautiful in any which way that you look at it. But I have 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, if you guys are patient, to try to give you the whole diamond, so to speak. And so it's really complicated for me to try to explain to you how powerful and how amazing this gospel message is that Jesus, who is God, would come down in flesh, that the painter would step into the painting and and what it would all accomplish for us. The meaning behind it is so powerful. Um, And so this this year, I'm going to try to do something different. I'm going to preach to you, but uh, afterwards, I'm going to try to help you experience it. Uh, This kind of hit me this past week when I was teaching some people how to play a card game. Uh, you're like, what? A pastor playing cards? Uh, yeah, it's just so I can take their money. I'm just kidding. I, I don't gamble. Uh, over $20. But as I was teaching them this game, uh, I realized something. It hit me. I said something out loud, and then I was like, oh, that's why Easter and Christmas is, is so difficult for me. Uh, we were, I was explaining to them. And you know when you're explaining a card game, you're like, this card's a special card. It does this unless you have this thing that happens. And then you've got four of these cards, and they do this. And you can kind of just see the person looking at you like, this is complicated. And uh, I said, don't worry, it's not that complicated once we get started. And I was like, that's it. That's why it's so complicated to preach. Because I'm up here telling you about something that you were meant to experience. Christmas is something that we experience. We experience Emmanuel, God, with us. And so I'm up here grasping for words, trying to show you how powerful and meaningful this is in your life. And yet, if you don't see it, if you don't experience it, it is so difficult for you to even begin to kind of grasp it. But once you start experiencing it, once you start to see it, it's something that you can't unsee. And uh, so I'm going to explain the meaning behind it, because explaining the rules is important. But then I'm going to use art to give you a window into it. And it's a little bit different. It's Christmas Eve, so I can do different things. If you guys don't like it, come back next week. I'll do something else. I'll, I'll talk for 45 minutes like I usually do. Uh, but this week, I want to do something different. And then we're going to light some candles And we're going to try not to burn this place down to the ground because our rent is free. And I'd like to keep it that way. Okay, (laughs) let me pray for us and then we'll jump into John chapter three. Father, your love for us is overwhelming. God, I pray that we would be able to experience that, not as some sort of abstract ideas that uh, we know because we have grown up in the Bible Belt or we grew up in the church and we kind of know that you were born in a manger and. Uh, You sent your son to be born in a manger and he lived a life and died a death. And God, the thing I fear is that that becomes something that we just recite and something that we become comfortable with, something that doesn't amaze us, that doesn't lead us to awe. God, I pray that you would shake that out of us tonight. God, I pray that as we look at this powerful, powerful thing that is true of human history, that is quite honestly the climax of human history, God, that we would view it as such. And that maybe for the first time tonight, somebody would begin to see you for who you really are. They begin to follow you, not because they have to, but because they want to. They would experience you as who you are. Lord, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Amen. 
John chapter 3 is, uh, is an interesting uh, chapter. It begins with Nicodemus, who's this really big religious guy. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's worked his whole life to get to the position he is. He's called the teacher of Israel. And he's confronted with this Jesus of Nazareth guy who is, is really kind of messing up a lot of the ways he thinks about the world. You know, this guy should not have the power that he has, but he does. He's healing paralytics. He's, he's helping the blind to see. And so Nicodemus comes to him and he's like, you've got to explain this to me. It's obvious that God is with you, but it's not obvious to me why he's working through you, a Jewish carpenter who I've never heard of. Why would God be working through you? And by the way, we all must become like Nicodemus at some point in our life. We're confronted with who Jesus is. You can't get around Jesus. Every artist who's ever painted a picture has painted something to do with Jesus. Every artist who's ever sang a song has sung about Jesus or one of the themes of Jesus. If you are in the sciences, if you are in mathematics, if you are in any area, you will find Jesus' fingerprints all over it. It's impossible not to live in this world and come face to face with Jesus. And any logical person will have to ask, who is Jesus to me? Who is he? And you've got to ask yourself, why in the world do so many people worship a Jewish carpenter who never wrote down a word of his own. There's something quite special about this Jesus guy. And this is where Nicodemus is. He's asking him. And then Jesus, Jesus says, we've well, got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, like, what do you mean be born again? And Jesus, he says, not born physically. You got to be born of the flesh. Yes, born of water, born like we all are born. But then there's, there's this new birth, the birth of the spirit, which means... You're not just a better person. You're, you're a brand new person. You're completely different. You see the world differently because you've seen Jesus. Because you've seen him for who he is. It changes everything about everything with you. And this is why Christians do baptisms. We go under the water. It's dying to ourselves. We come up out of the water. It represents our new life in Christ Jesus. But Nicodemus is at the very, we, we know this, but Nicodemus doesn't. This is the first time he's hearing this. Jesus begins to explain this to him. And then as we get down towards the end of the chapter, Jesus says the most famous verse in all of the Bible. But to Nicodemus, it was just another thing that he was saying. And yet in it, we find something very profound. Verse 16, it says, For God loved the world in this way. I, I, I want to pause there because that in and of itself should kind of blow our minds. God loved the world. I don't know if you guys know this or not. You are a part of the world. And when you take that down to the individual level, even looking at myself, it's quite amazing that God would love me, that God would even know my name, the God of this universe, the one who created the mountains. I just came back from Colorado, beautiful, gorgeous skies, gorgeous mountains. And to think that that God created and loves and knows me, that's pretty amazing. He didn't just say he loves the world. He shows us. It says he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this is the, the first kind of maybe two or three things I want to point out. And, and that, that is amazing about Christmas to me. And the first is this, that God would send his son. But here is, uh, as Christians, as Protestants, we believe this kind of crazy uh, theology that's really hard to explain. And that is that God is three in one. That God is three distinct beings, yes, but he is one God. That he's Father, he's Son, he's Holy Spirit. So we see that God himself comes and walks amongst us. That should absolutely blow our minds. And it doesn't blow some of your minds, and that's okay. Uh, it's because I'm not doing a good enough job communicating the truth. It's not because it's not amazing. When you think about it, how crazy and awesome it is that God would come. Emmanuel, God with us, God would take on flesh. And this is why we call Jesus Mighty Counselor, by the way. 
Now, this is really a profound truth for Christians that's really practical in our life. You see, God never promises that our life is going to be perfect. Never promises that if we do the right things, the right things will happen. You know, that's how a lot of people view Christianity. And if you view Christianity that way as a set of rules to follow and life will work out, you'll be really, really disappointed. Because what happens when you give money like you're supposed to give money and then you lose your job? What happens when you live the good Christian life, you read the Bible twice, you know all the Bible verses, and you go to the doctor and you get a cancer diagnosis? See, these things don't match up. But what we see in Jesus is not that Jesus is like a genie who takes away all of our suffering if we do the right things. We see Jesus as a suffering servant who can empathize with us. Who are the best counselors? Not just professional counselors, but the best people who give you advice are those who have been through what you're going through. And so people come to me and say, Blake, how could God allow suffering? And that's a really complicated question. And, and quite honestly, he allows suffering because he allows us to breathe and, breathe and live. We, we cause a lot of our own suffering, and humanity has caused a lot of suffering for other people. It's more our problem than his problem. But what amazes me is not suffering. What amazes me is that that God would come in and undergo that suffering. That God would become one of me. That Jesus would become a person. He was fully man. And by that I mean, if, if you broke, you could break his bones. Like he, he, he bled and he sweat and he cried. Everything that makes us human, Jesus was and he experienced. Now let me tell you why it's so powerful for me as a Christian living in 2021. Because whatever I go through, Jesus has gone through also. Whatever you go through, Jesus has gone through also. If you've ever filled, felt abandoned, Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned. If you have lung, lung cancer, Jesus knows what it's like to have his lungs fill up with blood to the point where he couldn't breathe anymore. If you've had your family abandon you, Jesus knows what it's like to have his earthly family abandon him. Jesus knows what you're going through. He doesn't promise that it'll be perfect, but what he does promise to his followers is that he'll be with them and that he's a good shepherd, taking them through the dark valley through the other side. And as a Christian, that ought to give me a peace that the world does not see or know very often. Now, as we continue reading on, this is actually my favorite verse. 316 gets all the press, but 317 is my favorite verse. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us. This is a big theological term. You guys can use this at the dinner table tonight. Uh, and you'll sound really smart or whenever you see your family next. It's the word imputation. Jesus imputed to us his righteousness. Now, let me explain that. Uh, so I actually have the power of imputation as a pastor. Imputation is simply me being able to change your status. So when I am uh, doing a, a wedding ceremony, people want my signature because my signature imputes a new status to them. So when I stand up there, I'm declaring these words. I'm saying, you can kiss the bride, you're now husband and you're now wife. And they're kind of just words, but they're way more than words. Because when they come from my mouth and when I sign the document, it changes your tax status. <laughs> you go from two eyes to one we. Because I've imputed it to you. Or, or like in, in a courtroom, uh, a judge imputes a guilty or an innocent case. Now, it doesn't matter if you did it. It doesn't matter if the glove fits or it doesn't fit. What matters is if the judge says you're guilty or you're innocent. You might be guilty, but if you have the innocent status, you get to walk throughout the earth as an innocent man or an innocent woman. And you might be innocent, but if the judge and the jury find you guilty, then you are guilty and you have to go to jail or prison or pay whatever fine the jury comes up with, irregardless of how desperately you feel like you didn't do it. And the Bible teaches that before God, we stand as enemies. We stand as sinners. Now, this isn't 
something that we really like to hear. Uh, we're all kind of snowflakey, myself included. I would much rather hear that I'm a great guy with just a couple problems. But no, I'm an enemy of God. And you say, well, that's kind of severe. Uh, but it's really not. See, God is severe on sin because he loves you and sin hurts you and sin hurts other people. God takes hurting us, our hurting, more serious than we do. For instance, God is worried uh, about the seeds that cause the things that we all would say were bad. Now, you guys would all tell me that murder is bad. Nobody's like, yeah, murder is okay. Everybody would say sex trafficking is evil. Rape is evil. We, we would all say stealing and lying and conniving are evil, probably because we've been lied to or stolen from before, and we know how it feels, and it's not good. And God says, I agree with all of those things, but I take it a step further. See, I, I, I hate the seed that leads to sex trafficking, and that is called lust. I hate the seed that leads to anger, or leads to murder, and that is called anger. I hate the seed that leads to stealing and lying and conniving, and that is envy. And you say, Blake, I don't think that would ever grow into me. You know, I would never do those things just because I envy or I lust every once in a while. And I'd say, don't be so sure. Nobody wakes up one morning and goes, I think I'll commit adultery today. You don't wake up and go, I think I'm going to kill somebody today. What I mean by that is it happens over time. It's one small decision leading to another small decision leading to another small decision. And we've all made those decisions. And we've all contributed to the brokenness of the world in ways we understand and in ways we won't understand until the end. We deserve to be an enemy of God. And now, if I just ended there, this is really sad and bad news. And you're like, can we go back to joy of the world? But let me get to the good news. And that is that Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life. It's unbelievable to us to even try to imagine the kind of life that Jesus lived. Jesus was the only one worthy of life, and yet he died on a cross. This interesting story that uh, John actually uses in verse 14, right before all this, he says, uh, he, he calls back to an Old Testament story where Moses was to raise a snake, and the Israelites who had been bitten by the snake would be healed from this. And it was really interesting because the snakes are what caused them to be condemned to death, and yet it was the snake that healed them also. And Jesus says that actually points to him. That in other words, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see two things. We see our condemnation and we also see our salvation. What we see on the cross of Jesus that God imputed to Jesus what I deserved. My status as sinner went to Jesus. His status of righteousness came to me. Let me tell you why this is really good news. You can't change a status once it's been given in a court of law. In the courts of God, he has called me a son of God, innocent. doesn't matter the sin I commit tomorrow or next week or next year. God saw it all before the foundations of the world. He said, I want Blake. I want all of him. And on the cross of Jesus, when he dies, he lets out his final breath. He says, it is finished. Not it is finished if Blake feels really bad about what he's done. And, you know, he, he prays for me to forgive him 39 times over the course of his life. Then maybe I'll let him in. No, it was I love Blake. I love my people. And his status is a status of innocent in that moment for those who trust in Jesus. Now, the question you have to ask is, is why is that good news? If that's good news to you, if it's good news that you're a son or a daughter of God through what Jesus has done on the cross, I would ask you why it's good news. And here's for me why I thought that was good news for a long time. And it might be you as well. I thought if honestly, if you were to corner me and say, you know, why is it good news that Jesus came? Why is it good news that Jesus died on a cross? Why is it good news that your sins are forgiven? It probably boiled down to something like, I don't have to go to hell when I die. That would probably be like the, the basis of what it was. Um, for some of you, it might be, you know, I get to go to heaven when I die. But as a kid, heaven didn't really seem that great to me. You know, it was like uh, we were going to be sitting with these chubby angels and singing all day and have to listen to a guy like me preach. And that only sounded minorly better than hell. But 
But the way hell was presented to me was pretty bad, you know, <laughs> like uh, uh, it, it, this is nothing against the church or the Sunday school teachers. I'm sure they meant well, uh, but I was probably too young uh, to hear the messages I was hearing. And I, I literally had the hell scared out of me. Uh, if you were to ask me why I accepted Jesus and got baptized, probably two reasons. One, because my friend did it and I thought it was cool. Everybody clapped for him. And number two, because I had this, this Sunday school teacher. I had a couple of them, but, but th- this one moment really stands out to me uh, where he was talking to us about repentance. Now, he never defined repentance. That's how he said it. It was really scary. It's not like a horror film. Uh, he never defined to us what repentance was, but he told us we needed to do it. And he, his climax of his message was to tell us about his brother that had died without knowing the Lord Jesus. And he said, I tell you guys what, I've never seen anything like it. We were in the hospital, and he died. He flatlined. But he came back for a minute, and he started shouting, It's hot! It's hot! It's hot! And then he died. That was his message. He said, Now you guys need to repent, unless you want to be like him. I don't know what that is, but sign me up, you know? (laughs) I do not want to go through that. That was kind of my my basis for, for Jesus and why it was good news. And and what, what I want to what I want to say to you, what I want to present to you, that the message of the Bible is very clearly that heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. It's a place for people who are in love with Jesus. Amen. The whole message of the Bible, the point of the Bible is not to get you out of hell or into heaven. The whole point of the Bible is that you would have a relationship with God. See, if we were to go back three trillion years, three hundred trillion years, here's what we would find: we would find the Trinity. In perfect relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion of one mind, of one accord. God wasn't bored when he created us. Like he needed a pet or something, you know? Like, man, I'm tired of you guys. Let's, let's create something else. No, God was in perfect relationship. He created us out of love because he wanted us to be invited into that triune relationship. Not that we are gods ourselves, but that we get to commune with God. This is what the Garden of Eden was all about. That God walked, he walked with Adam and Eve. They had afternoon walks together. That was the powerful part of the Garden of Eden. And for a lot of us, when we think of heaven, we think of this kind of paradise that we make up in our own mind. If you like fishing, then there's fishing. If you like hunting, then there's hunting. If you like country music, then that's there somehow by some miracle. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's okay. Uh, There's definitely not cats there in my heaven. I mean, you can have them in yours. That's fine. But see, the, the, the the point is we create these heavens in our own images. And when people say, how could God not send everybody to heaven? My thinking is usually something along the lines of, well, what heaven are you talking about? Because the people you're talking about probably wouldn't even like the way heaven is described in the Bible. Because you know what the main purpose of heaven is? The main joy of heaven is that we get to know God fully. If you don't like being with God, if you don't love God's presence now, you wouldn't like it anyways. When the Bible talks about heaven and it talks about hell, the primary things it talks about is one is where God's presence is and one is where God's presence is not. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, people ask him that question. He said, Dallas, do you think people, all people will go to heaven? And he said, well, I think everybody who can stand it will go to heaven. In other words, some of you standing there in the presence of a holy God where his presence was everywhere, absent from all the things you love so desperately in this world, you wouldn't even like that place. Uh, John Piper puts this in perspective for me better than anybody else. He says, you know, if, if heaven was a place, if you knew it was a place where there was none of your favorite hobbies, where you didn't have any of your family members, any of your friends, any of the things that you imagine that heaven would be like, but there was Jesus there, would you still want to go? 
Or would you rather go to a place where you had every dream that you could ever imagine, but Jesus wasn't there? That puts it in great perspective to me. See, because what Christmas is about is this amazing opportunity for us to experience relationship with God. To see Jesus for who he is and to say, I don't have it all figured out, but I love you. I want you. Uh, I'm going to now hopefully help you experience that. Uh, I don't like Christian movies. I just, um, let me, I'm going to confess that right now up front to you guys. They give me Hallmark vibes and I don't like Hallmark movies. Um, you can like them. It's not a sin. I'm just, I don't really usually like them. Uh, so when somebody recommended to me to watch this show called The Chosen, some of you might have watched it. Uh, it's like a Netflix style show about Jesus and his disciples. I was very skeptical, like really skeptical. Didn't watch it for a while. And then I, I started watching and it was different. It was different from those other shows. And for me personally, it did something in my own faith that was really powerful. It made Jesus real to me in a, in a way I hadn't experienced in a while. And look, this is not scripture. The Chosen is not scripture. They, they, they use some artistic creativity in it. And, and I wouldn't tell you it's scripture. I wouldn't play this on a normal Sunday. But as we come today, I, I think that this scene is one of the most powerful examples of what I'm talking about. About God not being abstract ideas, but Jesus actually being a person that we have relationship with. And the scene is actually playing out what I just preached over. It's John chapter 3. It's Nicodemus and Jesus. And Nicodemus begins to see Jesus for who he truly is. And I think that this is how all of us are supposed to be when we encounter Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be born again, it's to see Jesus in this way. So you can go ahead and play the video, and then I'll come back. Father... I love so much about that scene, and I, I know, God, that it's a, it's a piece of art. So it might not have been realistic, totally down to the T, but God, what I love partly about that is how you love us, how Nicodemus laid his head into you as a father, although he was much older. God, you provide that same thing for all of us. Lord, your greatest desire is that our desire matches up with yours. God, that we would desire the things you desire. Namely, God, as you desire a relationship with us, you desire us to be a part of your family. You want us, above all, to desire a relationship with you. Lord, I pray today that scales would fall off of some of our eyes, the eyes of our heart, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. We would more and more see you as the light in this dark world, worthy of all praise worthy of all worship. God, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.